there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession this new $10 scratch off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The morning of January 14th, 1993, was cool and overcast in the small city of San Juan de Pasto, Colombia. Surrounded by mountains in the Atriz Valley, Pasto is a charming enclave steeped in history and natural beauty. Just a week earlier, the massive annual Blacks and Whites Carnival had come to a close with the Dia de Cui, a celebration of the region's signature dish, roasted guinea pig. But on the morning of January 14th, volcanologist Stanley Williams was in Pasto for a different reason. The town also rests in the shadow of Colombia's most active volcano, Galeras. As part of a UN-sponsored research conference, Williams would be leading a team of 13 scientists down into the volcano's crater. After 10 years of dormancy, Galeras had reawakened in 1988. The volcano's most recent eruption was just six months earlier, in July of 1992. But based on seismological evidence, all the experts believed the volcano was dormant again. The expedition was deemed safe. But at 1.45 p.m., just hours after the research team descended into Galeris, the crater floor began to buckle. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on the Galeris Volcano Survivors, nine scientists who, despite all odds, lived through a massive eruption while inside the volcano's crater. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. On January 11, 1993, 90 scientists from 15 countries arrived in Pasto, Colombia. The United Nations was on a mission to reduce the death toll from natural disasters around the world, 
and the town of Pasto, which rests only six miles from an active volcano, was considered a priority. After a decade of remaining dormant, Galeris erupted in 1989, shooting ash and rocks over Pasto's 300,000 residents. Luckily, there was minimal damage and no fatalities, but the news set off alarms for scientists throughout the country. Galeris was back in action, and the next blast might not be so harmless. In hopes of predicting any future eruptions, the Colombian government set up extensive monitoring sensors to track the volcano's gas emissions and seismic activity, including an observatory in Pasto and a station at the volcano's summit. Just three years later, in July 1992, a small screw-shaped line appeared on the seismograph. Seismometers measure movements of the ground, like the tremors caused by earthquakes, explosions, and volcanic eruptions. As magma pushes up against the volcano's walls and gas pressure builds, the surrounding ground shakes, sometimes imperceptibly, sometimes so severely that the town's residents can actually hear it humming and rumbling. This is one of the surest signs that a volcano is about to erupt. Sure enough, Five days after the blip on the seismograph, Galeris erupted. Days later, the volcano was quiet once again. During the previous period of activity, a mound of thick lava had accumulated in the opening at Galeris's summit, forming what's known as a lava dome. The dome had been blocking the opening and trapping gases inside the volcano. The eruption in July 1992 had finally blasted through the dome releasing the built-up pressure and, as far as anyone could tell, putting Galeris to bed. Galeris was finally quiet. The UN jumped at the opportunity to schedule a research expedition the next winter. On January 13, 1993, the 90 scientists at the conference in Pasto clambered to sign up for their spots on the field trips scheduled for the next day. The most highly sought-after expedition was the data collection trip being led by Dr. Stanley Williams. This was the only group that would be entering the volcano's crater. Dr. Williams, a geology professor at Arizona State University, had been doing research in Columbia since 1985. In November of that year, upwards of 20,000 people were killed in the town of Armero when the Nevado del Ruiz volcano erupted. Dr. Williams journeyed to Armero with the U.S. Geological Society, and he quickly gained a reputation for being difficult. The U.S. Geological Society was officially there to aid and support the local officials after the tragedy. This was a credo Williams refused to live by. He terrified the town's residents by claiming that the volcano was going to erupt again, despite a scientific consensus to the contrary. Williams believed that gas emissions were a more reliable predictor of eruptions than seismic activity. Nevado del Ruiz did not erupt again, but Williams continued to push his unpopular beliefs. Despite his maverick reputation, Williams was respected amongst his peers in Colombia. The spots in his research group filled up quickly. But his longtime colleague, Marta Calvache, a native of Pasto, would not be joining him. 
That night, Marta, along with a few of the conference's other attendees, raised concerns about the safety of the expedition into Galeris's crater. Seismic activity had been appearing on the Pasto Observatory's monitors on a daily basis. The scientists called the events tornillos, the Spanish word for screw, because of the pattern they formed on the seismograph. It was the same pattern they'd seen before Galeris's eruption the year before. Dr. Williams disregarded their worries. The tornillos were of no concern to him. And even if the volcano was in danger of erupting, it was all the more imperative that they collect gas samples right away. After all, he believed gas emissions were far more useful than seismographs when it came to predicting eruptions. He promised his group that he'd make the visit to the crater as short as possible. The group set off at 7.30 a.m. the next morning on January 14, 1993. As they climbed the winding road up to the volcano's summit, the early morning mist turned into a heavy fog. Several journalists went along on the long drive, bombarding the scientists with nonstop questions. One question in particular irritated them more than all the others. When would Galeris erupt again? Stanley Williams' answer was the same as it had been all week. The volcano was tranquilo. Williams was confident that, since the lava dome that had led to the last eruption was no longer there, gases were no longer being trapped in the volcano's throat. However, lava domes are one of the rarer causes of volcanic explosions. Only 6% of all eruptions form lava domes. They are not a reliable indicator for whether a volcano is safe to explore or not. Dome or no dome, Galeris was still vulnerable to the run-of-the-mill pressure buildups that caused the majority of volcanic activity. By 9 a.m., the field research groups had reached the summit. They were 14,000 feet above sea level, and in the thick fog, the peak was surrounded by a solid gray mist on all sides. Geophysicists at the large two-room monitoring station on the summit would keep in contact with the observatory down in Pasto, where seismic activity was being monitored. Most of the 30 scientists from the conference got out their gear and began taking measurements around the outer rim of the volcano. But Dr. Williams and the 12 other scientists in his group marched directly towards the deep crater at the summit's center. A freezing wind whipped over the ridge. The scientists were eager to head down into the warm, windless protection of the crater's walls. At just after 9.30 in the morning, they began their descent. A yellow nylon rope was cemented into the rocky ridge to guide the researchers down the slope. It was a 100-foot drop to the next patch of level ground. Then, they'd be able to walk the rest of the way to the bottom of the crater. Because the rocks were in danger of dislodging, they had to go down the rope one at a time. Jose Arles Zapata volunteered to go first. He was a young Colombian volcanologist who had studied Galeris extensively. Next down was Igor Menyailov, a Russian scientist making his very first trip to South America. Dr. Williams went next, followed by Jeff Brown, a British scientist. Next were Carlos Trujillo and Fernando Cuenca, both from Colombia. Three Americans came down next. 
Mike Conway, Andrew McFarlane, and Andy Adams. Holding up the rear were three more Colombian scientists, Alfredo Roldan, Fabio Garcia, and Carlos Estrada. Once inside the vast crater, the scientists took in their incredible surroundings. The flat depression in the mountaintop was 2,000 feet wide, and at its center, steam rose from a 400-foot-wide hole, the volcano's mouth. Being inside an active volcano's crater was the chance of a lifetime, especially for Jose Arles Zapata, who devoted a good deal of his life to studying Galeras. Some of the experts had already seen more exciting days. Alfredo Roldan joked, Hey, Jose Arles, this isn't an active volcano. If you want an active volcano, then you should see Pacaya. In turn, Stanley Williams ribbed Roldan and Andy Adams for wearing their safety gear. They were the only two men wearing hard hats. Most of the scientists did not even bring along gas masks or safety goggles. Adams was irritated. He had never been made fun of for taking safety seriously, especially inside an active volcano. Unbelievably, the group had weighed the pros and cons of carrying safety gear, and they decided that good boots and warm clothing were all they needed. No one was even carrying emergency medical supplies. The stunning lack of precautions extended even further. Only one person in the entire party was carrying a radio, Jose Arles Zapata. Back at the station, a student, not a trained professional, was monitoring the seismographs. Zapata had contacted that student, Adriana Ortega, before descending into the crater. He was pleased to hear that so far that morning, everything was quiet. But shortly after he got that initial report, a tornillo appeared on the seismographs. It was small and didn't appear to be anything disturbing, but it was policy to inform the researchers in the crater if anything showed up on the seismograph, no matter how small it appeared. Adriana tried to contact Zapata several times, but there was no response. She ran outside to flag down her coworker, Roberto Torres. Luckily, Torres was able to reach Zapata with his own radio and tell him about the tornillo. Zapata assured Torres that they'd wrap things up quickly. But when Zapata passed the update on to the other scientists, they seemed unbothered. Even the most safety-conscious, hard-hat-wearing members of the team kept dawdling along. Zapata was the only one who was worried. He kept thinking about the conversation they'd had back at headquarters the night before. The last time tornillos appeared this frequently, Galeras erupted, and Zapata was standing only a few hundred feet from the volcano's mouth. Coming up, pressure continues to build inside the Galeras volcano. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. After receiving confirmation of seismic activity at the Galeras volcano, Jose Arles Zapata was ready to get out of the volcano's crater as quickly as possible. But despite their promises to wrap things up, his fellow scientists continued to take samples at an almost leisurely pace. Igor Menyailov was busy collecting glass vials of gas from a fumarole, a hole in the volcano's surface, that was releasing a 30-foot column of steam. Stanley Williams believed that if there was a higher-than-usual concentration of sulfur dioxide in the gas, that meant magma was rising to the surface, and an explosion was imminent. There had never been a successful prediction based on this type of analysis, but Williams hoped these tests would help prove his theory correct. And Andy Adams, in his protective hard hat, hoped they'd live to see how the test results came back. He was relieved when he realized he could get all the samples he needed from the fumaroles on the outer edge of the crater's rim. Something about going down onto the crater floor spooked him. Menyailov was much more adventurous. He walked right into the hottest and most dangerous part at the center of the volcano, wearing no gas mask, with a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Williams was charmed by the Russian scientist's roguish attitude. The others weren't all quite as thrilled. Zapata kept urging the team to hurry up, but Williams, the leader of the group, was actually encouraging them to take their time. This would be their only chance to soak in the volcano's glory, at least for a long, long time. Williams climbed to the top of the crater's rim, looking down at the fumarole hundreds of feet below. It was steaming and smelled of sulfur, but it was magnificent. This is what he'd become a geologist for, not for the long days of sitting in labs, poring over tables and charts, but the rare, exhilarating moments of field research, experiencing nature in all its terrifying beauty. As he watched the volcano breathe, the sun came out for the first time all day. The scientists could finally look out and see Pasto's rooftops 14,000 feet below. They also got a glimpse of three unexpected guests climbing down the yellow nylon rope to join them. No one recognized them, but Williams went over to chat. It turned out they were just adventurous tourists, a man, his teenage son, and the son's friend. They'd chosen a dangerous day to hike an active volcano. At around 12.45 p.m., Williams finally suggested that the group should start to head back. Andy Adams, Alfredo Roldan, Carlos Estrada, and Fabio Garcia all gathered their equipment and made their way back toward the yellow rope. The journey out took twice as long as the journey in, since they were walking up the slope instead of down. 
The men were getting exhausted. Then, at about 1.40 p.m., Roldan heard something that stopped him in his tracks. A low rumbling. Retumbos. Retumbo, which literally translates to thunder or boom, is a Spanish term for deep underground reverberations similar to the sound of a rock slide. They're usually associated with earthquakes or volcanoes. Roldan asked Garcia if he'd heard the sound. Garcia thought it might just be normal rockfall, which was common at Galeras. But Roldan thought it sounded different. He'd only heard that sound once before, at the Guatemalan volcano Pacaya, just before it erupted. The four men hurried to the yellow rope just ahead. Andy Adams was lagging behind. Roldan decided not to wait for him. He started his climb, letting the others catch up behind him. When Roldan finally reached the summit at 1.45 p.m., he was ambushed by two reporters with a camera and microphone. He'd forgotten the news crew had followed them up. Before he could even catch his breath, one of the reporters shoved a mic in his face and asked him for his impressions of the volcano. Roldan said the day had been a success. Galeris was an ideal testing ground for their purposes. Then the reporter asked the infamous question, when do you think Galeris will erupt again? Roldan glanced at the camera and said, it could be a year from now, it could be a month from now, or it could be next week. At that moment, the video goes blank. The mic picked up the sound of a loud explosion and three haunting screams. Down in the crater, the steam rising from the volcano's mouth turned to dark smoke, ash, and a stream of glowing red rocks the size of microwaves. The crater floor lurched back and forth, rumbling like subterranean thunder. A thick surge of black ash and red lava shot into the sky. One of the scientists cried out, it's the volcano. The low gas emissions and minor seismic activity hadn't been a sign that Galeris was dormant. The volcano had once again sealed itself. The acidic gases from the explosion in July had actually altered the rock in a way that sealed together the fissures. Gases had been building up inside, creating an immense amount of pressure that finally caused the volcano to explode. The 10 scientists still inside the crater didn't understand the warning signs until it was too late. Stanley Williams watched from his perch on the crater's rim as the blast of lava and rock rained down over his colleagues. Igor Menyailov and the other four researchers still near the center of the crater were almost certainly dead already. Andrew McFarlane, Luis Lemarie, and Mike Conway were on the rim across from Williams. And just a bit behind Williams was Jose Arles Zapata, along with the three tourists who'd wandered into the volcano. Williams stood frozen for a split second. His mind flashed to his wife and two young children back home in Arizona. Then he turned and took off running. Williams caught up with Zapata and the tourists. Andrew McFarlane followed close behind them. Their only hope of survival was to climb back up the yellow nylon rope leading to the top of the summit. Running was difficult, 
because the surface was now a mixture of soft ash and big boulders. Within seconds, the force from the explosion launched more meter-wide boulders hundreds of feet into the air, sending smaller rocks and glowing shrapnel raining down. Williams looked back to see a rock flying towards McFarlane. It knocked him down, sending him flying into a pile of white-hot rock shards. McFarlane managed to pull himself up. The skin of his hands and arms burned raw from the scalding rocks. The three men kept running as the volcano shifted beneath them. And then... Another blast launched a rock into Williams's head, knocking him to the ground. The force caved in part of his skull, driving bone fragments into his brain. Struggling to get up, Williams saw another glowing boulder careening towards the back of Zapata's head. It slammed him down into a pile of burning rubble. As Williams got back on his feet, he realized that since the eruption had started, he had only traveled about 20 feet, and the glowing fountain rising from the volcano's mouth was only getting bigger. The top of the massive funnel of ash was now twice as wide as the crater, about 4,000 feet in diameter. Williams kept moving forward toward where Zapata was lying. He wasn't getting up. As he got closer, he saw that Zapata's still body was bloody and contorted. He was dead. And then he saw the tourists, the curious father and teenagers he'd welcomed into the crater just an hour before. Now their figures were charred and burning. Williams felt neither sadness nor shock upon seeing the bodies. His only thought was that he needed to get out. Williams only ran a few more yards before a torrent of rocks flew into his legs. He tried to pull himself up, but the pain was unbearable. He looked down and saw that his lower left leg was engulfed in flames. His right foot was almost completely severed. Williams managed to get up, and using only his left leg, he hopped over and took cover behind a large boulder. Temporarily safe from the barrage of lava and rock, he stamped out the flames that were covering his legs. The volcano exploded three more times in rapid-fire succession. A massive plume of black ash fired into the sky, and burning hot rubble pelted down. Down on the outer edge of the volcano, Marta Calvace, Williams' longtime colleague, was just realizing that Williams and his group were still inside the crater. She was half a mile away from the summit, but that didn't mean she was safe. She was standing in a perfect location for a pyroclastic flow. The previous day, Dr. Peter Baxter had given a presentation about the most common causes of death during a volcanic eruption. 30% of victims died in famines and epidemics long after the blast. 17% died in mudflows caused by volcanic activity, and another 17% in tsunamis related to volcanic eruptions. But by far, the most horrifying section was on the 27% of victims who died in pyroclastic flows. The remaining percentage was split among a number of less likely causes. A pyroclastic flow is what most people think of when they think about a volcanic eruption. Hot lava and ash flowing down slope at inescapable speeds. 
the flow can reach temperatures of well over 1,000 degrees Celsius. Dr. Baxter's presentation included photo slides that left even the most well-seasoned volcanologists shaken. Their bodies looked almost barbecued, like human forms made of charcoal. The sudden intense heat causes muscles to contract into a sort of boxer stance, like the victims of the famous disaster at Pompeii. But despite the incinerated bodies, the cause of death usually isn't being burned alive. Most die of suffocation. Thick clouds fill their throats, windpipes, and lungs, forming plugs of ash and mucus that prevent them from breathing. All of the scientists on the summit had been at Baxter's presentation, and they all knew that if lava started to flow past the crater, there was nowhere they could run. Coming up, the survivors of the initial blast continue their daunting escape from the crater. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. As the Galeras volcano continued to erupt on the afternoon of January 14, 1993, scientists inside the crater, as well as on the summit, began to worry about the possibility of a pyroclastic flow. Up on the summit, Peter Baxter, who'd given a presentation about pyroclastic flows just the day before, decided the best thing to do was stay put. He reasoned that if a cloud of ash and lava was ejected from the volcano, there was a chance his group could run to safety from their current position. Down inside the crater, three of the surviving scientists, Mike Conway, Andrew McFarlane, and Louise Lemarie, made their own plans. They were all horribly injured, Lemarie had two broken legs and a broken collarbone. Climbing out of the crater's steep wall was already going to be difficult. If the worst were to happen, they agreed that staying in their sheltered area might be the best option. People rarely survive pyroclastic flows, but typically the best way you would survive is by barricading yourself in an airtight building or depression and holding your breath until the smoke and gas has passed. This is exactly what the men were planning to do. But then the blasts settled down. The three men decided to make a run for it before it was too late. They stumbled through the rubble and ash towards the crater wall, which was barely visible through the smoke. McFarlane thought back to Dr. Peter Baxter's talk the day before. Baxter had said that people caught in a volcanic explosion had a 50% chance of survival. He repeated 50% over and over to himself like a mantra. McFarlane saw the yellow nylon rope up ahead, still hundreds of feet away. Reaching it seemed almost insurmountable. And then he heard a voice calling from behind a boulder. It was Stanley Williams, still alone and severely injured. 
his right foot hanging on by a thread. He wasn't sure if anyone else was still alive, but he was crying out for help, partially as a way to ensure he stayed conscious. Looking at his foot, he feared he would go into shock. Williams obviously couldn't walk on his own. McFarlane knew the only option was to pick him up and carry him. He reached his hand out to pull him up, but they were unable to grab hands. McFarlane's palms were nearly burnt off, and both men had severe injuries to their legs. Hoisting Williams up was unlikely in their conditions, and carrying him up the crater wall would be impossible. McFarlane had no choice but to leave his injured colleague there. At least he was somewhat protected by the boulder. As they continued to the rope, Conway could tell the other two men were losing steam. Their breathing was labored, their bodies were broken, and they still faced the task of pulling themselves up the steep, hundred-foot slope. Reverting to cold, detached logic, he tried to reassure them, this is a classic Vulcanian blast. It's a discrete blast. It's going to be a long time before gas pressure builds up and it blows again. The vent is degassing now. This is a situation we can survive. But Conway himself could barely believe what he was saying. He later recalled that he wasn't sure whether the volcano was just coughing a little bit or was clearing its throat in preparation for a major eruption. As he kept pulling himself forward, his mantra of 50% changed to, we won't all die. We won't all die. We won't all die. They finally reached the rope. Conway was the least injured, so he went up first. McFarlane and Lemarie struggled after him. McFarlane's raw, charred palms could barely grasp the rope. Lemarie's two broken legs made every step unbearably painful. When Conway finally reached the top, McFarlane and Lemarie were still stranded midway up the slope. As soon as Conway turned around, he was confronted by the news crew, who were still there covering the story of a lifetime. Conway pushed past them and bounded toward the two-room observation station at the top of the summit. The few people inside were shocked to see him, bloody, covered in ash, but still alive. Conway told them that a few men were still alive and trapped in the crater. He insisted that a rescue crew be sent. He decided not to mention that some people were dead, afraid it would scare them away from going down. About half a mile away from the summit, there was one person who couldn't be scared away, Marta Calvace. She and her research group were in tears, knowing their friends and colleagues were still in the crater. Marta radioed the observatory in Pasto and told them she was going up to the summit. The scientists at the observatory warned her that this was a terrible idea. The volcano was still rumbling, and getting closer to the center would only put Marta in unnecessary danger. At this point, there was little she could actually do to help, even if she climbed down into the crater herself. But Marta couldn't stand by and do nothing. She sent the rest of her group back down to Pasto and told them she would go alone. Another researcher, Patty Moths, insisted on going with her. The two women began their treacherous drive up the summit, toward the epicenter of the eruption. 
they drove in near-complete silence, only broken by Marta's radio communications with the observatory. They knew little, except that dozens of researchers were missing, injured, or for most of the team inside the crater, presumed dead. Halfway up, Marta and Patty encountered the jeep full of military police and national park workers fleeing the summit. Marta flagged down the jeeps and told them to turn around. They needed to help. Protocol usually dictates that once an eruption begins, even police and rescue workers should stand down and evacuate. The police and park workers were likely making the right call by leaving. Galeris could erupt again at any moment, and sending a rescue team into the crater would only put more people at risk. But Marta and Patty refused to listen. They were going up. The men felt a bit ashamed, watching the two scientists venture up into the center of the danger while they fled to safety. Down in the crater, Stanley Williams was still alone, shivering and near unconscious. He looked at his watch, which miraculously was still functioning. It was three o'clock. It had only been a little over an hour since the volcano erupted. By 6 p.m., it would be dark. The rescuers had only three hours to find him. There was no way he'd make it through the night in his condition. Williams finally broke down and began to cry. He continued to call for help, in English and in Spanish, but there was no response. His colleagues were all gone. They'd either escaped or they were dead. As Galeris continued to shoot ash into the sky, he wondered if anyone would even risk journeying into the inferno to save him. There was only one person he believed would risk their life to save the others. The woman who probably knew Galeris better than anyone else, Marta Calvace. And despite all odds, she was currently making her way up to the summit. For more information on the Galeris volcano, amongst the many sources we used, we found Surviving Galeris by Stanley Williams and Fen Montaigne and No Apparent Danger, The True Story of Volcanic Disaster at Galeris and Nevado del Ruiz by Victoria Bruce, extremely helpful to our research. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week to continue the story of the Galeris Volcano survivors. You can find all of ParCast's podcasts on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Desi Jadakin and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>